Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Rich Levin. Hospital in the home is emerging as a frequently discussed concept in the medical community. Programs that allow patients to receive hospital level of care in their homes have shown to be safer, less costly, and result in better patient outcomes. As a result, hospital in the home programs are gaining traction as an alternative option to acute inpatient stays. To better understand the opportunities, benefits, and challenges of hospital in the home programs, we invited two of the nation's pioneers and leading experts on the matter to join us on the Change Healthcare podcast. They are Dr. Bruce Leff, Director for the Center of Transformative Geriatric Research at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and Dr. Allison Krayshak, Emergency Medicine Physician and Assistant Medical Director at UC San Diego Emergency Department. Both helped innovate and steer hospital-in-the-home programs for their respective hospital systems and are optimistic that in-home hospital care can become the new standard of care for some patients. Your host for today's show, Laura Coughlin, Vice President for Interqual Clinical Development and Strategy at Change Healthcare. And now, here's Laura. Good day. This is Laura Coughlin, Vice President for Interqual Clinical Development and Strategy at Change Healthcare. Thank you for joining us today. We have a great program planned for today with our two guest speakers. Dr. Bruce Leff, who is a geriatrician and the director for the Center of Transformative Geriatric Research in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Allison Kreshak, who specializes in emergency medicine and is associate clinical professor at UC San Diego at the School of Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine. So we'd like to talk about this new trend that is happening out across the country called hospital in the home. I'd like each of you, and I'll start with Bruce, tell me a little bit about yourself and about how you got involved in the hospital and the home programs that are starting to pop up everywhere in the country. Bruce? Sure. So uh, thanks for having me. And my interest in home-based care goes back a little over 30 years. So I trained in primary care internal medicine here at Hopkins, Hopkins Bayview. And as second-year residents, we picked up a home-based primary care practice providing longitudinal care as residents to older adults in Southeast Baltimore who were homebound and couldn't easily access traditional ambulatory care. And for me, that was a pretty transformative clinical experience. I, I, I think I learned a lot about how to really talk to patients, how to take good histories, how to really hone a physical exam because I was a little bit further away from technology. Uh, I think I learned how to develop thoughtful and reasonable diagnostic workups for people who are a little bit further away from technology and from the hospital and how to counsel patients and and get them through some tough times. And I, I think I learned also a lot how to be a good guest in people's homes. And I think taking care of people and people in their homes changes the way you practice because you get to see firsthand how people live and you get to see, witness firsthand how all the social determinants of health truly impact people's lives and people's health. So that, that was just a, a very transformative experience for me. And as part of that, we would commonly see older people who became acutely ill say with pneumonia or heart failure exacerbations or the like. And many times they would refuse to go to the hospital because they had had very negative experiences when they were uh, 
inpatients in the hospital. And those experiences have been well documented in scores of studies, uh, which uh, led up to, in the late 90s, the uh, IOM's reports on crossing the quality chasm and the like into air is human. And, you know, I think our patients recognized uh, the challenges of being in the hospital well before, um, well before the experts did. So as geriatricians, we thought, hey, how about, why don't we start to think about, based on our experiences providing acute care in the home, sort of on a shoestring, uh, when people got acutely ill and refused to go to the hospital, why don't we see if we can actually develop that into some sort of real care model? And that's what we started to do at Hopkins back back in the mid '90s in terms of developing the construct of hospital at home. So that was that was kind of the start of it for me. Allison, tell us about your background. Sure, I'm an emergency medicine physician, uh, one of the uh, associate medical directors of the. UCSD ED, and I, I'm also one of the medical directors of our UCSD managed care program and work closely with our ACO here at UCSD. And um, in serving in both those roles, I have become acutely aware of the emergency department as a gateway to hospital admissions. And over the years, we've seen just an, an uh, exorbitant increase in emergency department volume, emergency department admissions, and the variety of patients who require admission to the hospital. As a result of this, it became apparent that we really need new options for, for patients. And based on that, we developed at UCSD a program where we're able to provide an ED-based option a disposition option for patients to receive care in the home as opposed to the hospital. And this is for lower acuity patients who would require short stays in the hospital up to three or four days. Uh, and in this, through this program, we've been able to transition them directly from the emergency department to their home and facilitated the provision of home-based care through home health nurses with oversight from their primary care doctor during these home health visits from the home health nurse. This program started as a pilot program and it was very successful. The majority of our patients enrolled in the program were actually 65 years of age and older. And through this program, we learned that it's, it, the systems that we had put in place are very feasible. Uh, to continue and to transition to a permanent program that provides seniors and other patients as well, non-seniors, an option for home-based health care. Great. So, Bruce, you mentioned the, the 90s, right? So is that really when you believe this kind of whole concept of doing a hospital level of care in a patient's home got started? And why is it now, here we are almost 20 years later, right? That's sad when you said crossing the quality chasm. It's 20 years ago that we talked about that. And we still have clearly huge issues uh, in this country relative to uh, quality of care and overall cost of care and, and outcomes for patients. So why now? Why is it, I, this certainly came to our attention. This is big buzz across the country around this. And, um, you know, and working with individuals such as the folks on this phone, you know, Interpol has really developed some appropriateness criteria for this. But why is this catching on now from your perspective? Yeah, I think a few things. So first of all, 
you know, we started in the mid 90s to try and develop a construct and start to prove it out as health services researchers and as uh, geriatric clinicians. Uh, but Hospital at Home does have a history that goes back a bit further, uh, not in the United States, but in places like the UK and Italy and Israel and Australia and New Zealand. And I think, you know, the common denominator there are those are places basically with single payer systems where economic incentives align to try and keep people out of the hospital if you can provide a high quality service that comes in at a lower cost. Um, so uh, it was started it started outside the United States. And in fact, um, one of the earliest studies was done by uh, Archie Cochran. And maybe people don't know Archie Cochran, but pe most people have heard of, uh, you know, Cochran database and Cochran meta-analysis and systematic reviews. And he did one of the first studies in the late 70s, uh, treating people, doing a randomized controlled trial of people with uh, myocardial infarction or heart attacks. And, uh, you know, people actually did better at home uh, than they did in the hospital. And certainly the treatment for cardiac conditions has changed. And we may not want to do that now uh, for most people. But, uh, you know, even then there, were, there was evidence being developed that perhaps being treated at home, certain patients, certain conditions uh, might, might, do, might do well. Uh, I think the reason things are starting to catch on now, and I would say especially over the last and I'd love to hear what Allison thinks, but uh, really over the last two to three years, two to four years, but really a lot in the last two years is, I think finally the changes wrought by the Affordable Care Act. You know, we're now a little bit over 10 years out, and I think we're starting to see that, um, that a lot of the philosophy of care that was baked into that really finally coming to roost. So the idea that, you know, readmissions to hospitals are not often a good a quality, a good, a qual an indicator of high quality care. The idea that we should try to move care towards the community. The idea that we value quality in healthcare at all and not simply providing volume of care. Uh, the fact that there are a number of health systems, I think somewhere in the neighborhood, probably 10 to 15% of health systems that are experiencing significant hospital capacity issues. And the idea that building new buildings, at least for some systems, not all, is not something that they want to do just because it costs a whole lot to capitalize hospital construction. And then once those buildings are built, uh, systems realize that they then need to fill those beds to feed the fixed costs of those lovely bricks and mortar towers. Um, I think also, you know, I think there's a bit of a, uh, a recognition that people don't always want to be in the hospital, that they actually value being at home, although there's certainly a very variability there. Uh, and also, I think finally, over time, again, now about 20 years out from uh, the IOM reports on hospital safety and hospital quality, that perhaps the hospital for some people is not the safest place. And then I think the last thing that's really contributed is um, the improvement in technology and the idea that as medical technology becomes more portable and miniaturized, you're actually able to take technology to the home, 
uh, and that as a tool, never a solution, but as a tool to enhance the capability of hospital at home uh, in, you know, in monitoring people. Uh, so I, I think a lot of, a lot of things are coming, coming to the fore. And, and of course, cost. We, you know, our, our current healthcare system, the costs are just unsustainable. So I think people are looking to hospital at home as one tool of many. There are many things that can help with the problem uh, to help, help uh, bend the cost curve a bit. Yeah, Allison, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And when you're commenting on that, you mentioned you started as a pilot. So talk a little bit about, you know, what has happened since and has that sort of been, you know, institutionalized within your organization? Correct. Yeah, we are in the process of transitioning uh, the program to a hospital level uh, supported program. And the program is very much still alive at ECSD. I agree with everything that Bruce said um, from the system level where we really need to on providing patients with other options. Um, and a lot of this, as he mentioned, um, helps, this, these programs can help to decrease hospital readmissions and uh, just admissions for lower acuity patients. There's also the patient satisfaction level where patients are, are, can be happier in their home receiving care and uh, not have to stay in the hospital. There's also uh, the, the harder to measure instances of avoiding dementia, of avoiding, avoiding falls, avoiding hospital-acquired infections, and this particularly applies to the older population. By keeping a senior population out of the hospital, they don't have to go through a period of recovering after an acute hospitalization. And I, I think that these are, these are harder outcomes to measure, but I, I do believe that they're real. So from that regard, the hospital at home for the senior population is um, in, I think it just a, a great option for that population. And then finally, there is the cost, and that, that is very real in today's uh, day and age with the Affordable Care Act and accountable care organizations. So we found through our pilot program that costs were significantly lower for those patients who received care at home for equivalent diagnoses of those patients who were admitted to the hospital. So for all those reasons, I think that these hospital at-home programs are worth pursuing for healthcare systems. Yeah, just if I could build on uh, Allison's comments, which were, which were spot on, you know, the notion that hospital at home can reduce adverse outcomes is very well proved in the literature. So, um, you know, in our work, when we did a multi-site national demonstration of hospital at home in the early 2000s, we did that in several Medicare managed care plans and a Veterans Affairs uh, health system around the country. And we took our time to very carefully measure uh, outcomes, complications that older people commonly experience like incident delirium. So developing an, uh, an episode of acute confusion and attention. And the important issue to think about with an outcome like that is that even though I think probably both Allison and I were taught in medical school that delirium is a transient event. You develop acute confusion and then you kind of come back to normal. Over the years, research has shown that people who experience incident delirium likely take a longer term cognitive hit. And there are some people who believe that uh, incident delirium may play a role for some patients in uh, the, the pathway towards dementia. So, you know, we found a 75% reduction in incident delirium 
uh, for people who are treated at home. And the reason that likely occurs is because when you're treated at home, basically home becomes what hospitals try and do to alleviate the risk factors for delirium. You're in a familiar environment. You're more likely to walk around because you're in that familiar environment. Uh, you have your own food and beverages around, so you're more likely to drink and eat, uh, and you're less likely to need a sleeping pill because, again, the hospital, the, uh, your home is quiet. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital at two o'clock in the morning, but it's, uh, you know, it's a circus. You know, people are trying to sleep, and then the Zamboni is rolling down the halls, cleaning the floors, and the nurses are yakking it up, and it's just, uh, you know, it's just nuts. The other really important outcome to highlight in the studies is that uh, there were there have been several systematic reviews of the dozens of randomized controlled trials of hospital at home. And when you put those together in systematic reviews, what you find is that there's about a 20% reduction in mortality. So dead or alive at six months, advantage to hospital at home with a what we call a number needed to treat. So how many people you have to treat in hospital at home to avoid one death at six months, and that number is 50. That's an incredibly, incredibly low number. So if hospital at home were a drug, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be on, on the call with you right now. Like I'd be, you know, on the beach in the Caymans counting, counting money because that would be a blockbuster drug, right? Uh, the challenge is there's a huge difference between uh, disseminating and uh, diffusing drugs into practice than it is to implement scale and spread health service delivery into practice. Um, but it is a very, very powerful intervention in terms of providing patient benefit. So it sounds like, I mean, the benefits are clear both, you know, from both of your backgrounds and experiential, plus what's, you know, clearly published in the literature. I think this is one of the areas where we have seen more literature than in, in many other areas of medicine added together. So given all that, what's needed really for a successful program? Bruce, can you address that? Yeah, so if, if we're talking about what's necessary to really get hospital at home scaled, I, th I think a few things. Uh, are, are worth thinking about. And, you know, one construct to apply here, I don't know if you're familiar with Everett Rogers' Diffusion of Innovations. Uh, mm -hmm. He was uh, sort of the guru of, you know, how do new ideas actually get into practice? And he did his original work with, you know, original research on farmers and how they would take up new technologies in terms of like new kinds of seed or new kinds of fertilizer uh, and the like. And, you know, he found that there were several attributes uh, of new innovations that would help understand how quickly they'd be diffused. So one was relative advantage. So is the new thing better than the old thing? And I think for hospital at home, we, we can say that there is strong evidence to suggest uh, that there is. Uh, another is observability. So can people see the new thing before they can actually try it out? And I think, you know, 20 years ago, there were really no hospital at home programs. And now there are probably about 20 around the country and people can actually go and touch those programs and have a look and talk to people who do them. So I think that helps. Uh, the next is trialability. So can you try out the new innovation relatively easily? And the answer to that is probably no. So, to, you know, I'm sure Allison would 
would say that if you're going to develop hospital at home, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you're building a hotel and you have to build the whole hotel and staff it up and get it ready before you can take care of your first, first guest or your first patient. Uh, and then um, complexity, usually simple innovations do best and hospital at home is not a simple, a simple model. So that's, that's, uh, that's against. And then the last one is compatibility. So how compatible is the new thing with the values of, you know, the people you're asking to adopt it? And I would say that most community-based interventions are less compatible with our medical system, which seems to value facility-based, high-tech, highly specialized approaches to care. So I think that's part of the reason why Hospital at Home has had challenges. Uh, in addition, there has not been a payment model for Hospital at Home yet in, in the fee-for-service sector. I think that's going to be changing soon. We've been doing a lot of work on policy and payment development, but that still does not exist. And then the last thing is really leadership in healthcare. You know, so I think leadership is still pretty focused on facility-based care, building buildings, and that is something that I think is starting to change, but it's a pretty hardwired thing. You know, you do see leadership out there that's, that, that is making those sort of adjustments and changes, but it's not yet the majority. So I think we're still in the early adopter, what, what Rogers would call the early adopter stage uh, of hospital at home, um, but I think that is going to be changing over time. Allison, what other thoughts do you have of, of what contributes to a successful program? I, I would agree with um, everything that Bruce said. The, based on our experiences, I think getting buy-in from the different levels of involvement is absolutely critical. And starting from the top, uh, to truly operationalize the program, there has to be support from hospital leadership. And uh, as Bruce just mentioned, that that's slowly changing. And I think with the advent of ACOs, that will continue to change as the cost efficiency becomes ever more critical to also providing a high value care. So from that perspective, highlighting to hospital leadership importance of decreasing readmissions, which the hospital leaders are, are very familiar with, highlighting the importance of creating inpatient capacity for higher acuity patients um, is, is another angle as well. And by keeping lower acuity patients at home, that opens up beds within the hospital for higher acuity patients who truly require inpatient care to come into the hospital system. That, that's um, an avenue to highlight as well. And we found that that worked very well. Um, the patients in our program were med surge level patients who didn't require monitoring. And by providing equivalent care at home for these patients, we were able to free up beds in the hospital for the higher acuity patients to come in. Um, then moving from hospital leadership, focusing on department leadership, whatever department this program arises in within the health system, there has to be um, obvious support from the, from the department leader. And then, um, and then it's down to the frontline teams, the physicians, the nurses, the care managers, the social workers, these, the members of each of these teams have to have buy-in as well. And the, the champion of any home hospital in the home program 
really has to make an effort to reach out to each of the uh, each of these groups and just highlight the highlight the benefits of these programs, how it can help our patients, how it can increase the satisfaction that our patients have, how it can avoid undesirable outcomes from being admitted to the hospital. That was the approach that we took. And then finally, there's also getting uh, buy-in from the other departments. And uh, when when I say other departments, I mean the in our program specifically, we had primary care doctors overseeing the patient's care at home. And we had to uh, go to the family medicine department and the internal medicine department and talk to the physicians of those departments and highlight what they already know, that some of their patients could receive great care at home and be very happy uh, receiving that care. We just had to highlight the um, and, and reassure them that the systems in place were reliable and that the the program could be successful, and it took a lot of it took a lot of work to onboard all these different individuals. Uh, but in the end, we once we uh, put out the education and um, showed them that the systems in place were reliable, there, there wasn't a lot of resistance. Everybody wanted this program to succeed. Can, can I just yeah. build on that a little bit um, and, and just point out, even though Allison and I have ne never met, um, Allison is an extremely unusual person because it's uh, to my knowledge um, at least in the states Allison may be one of the few Allison's program might be one of the few that originated from an emergency department um, mm -hmm. sort of origin uh, usually programs are coming from primary care or geriatricians occasionally surgeons and you know I think the emergency department tends to be one of the most critical nodes in developing a successful program because if emergency department physicians are not on board with thinking about admitting a patient to a hospital at home service, then the program dies very quickly. So, you know, Allison's embrace of hospital at home is fantastic. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the most common. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I think we're going to need, you know, education for primary care physicians about this, education for specialists about this, and ongoing education for emergency medicine physicians about this. Because I think, again, we're trying to change mindset and convince people that doing acute level care at home is actually feasible and safe, and in fact, for, for many patients uh, preferred. And then the issue of you know assuring people that you can actually do this care at home. I think another of the challenges for hospital at home, which which people are working on, is the notion of creating the logistics and supply chain to do hospital at home really well. Right? You're in the hospital, you have a supply, you're sitting on the ward or you're sitting in the emergency department and you order an intravenous antibiotic for someone you know, you put in that order and a lot of stuff happens behind the scenes and then the medicine comes to you and you give it to the patient. You know, that sort of hardened, redundant supply chain doesn't quite exist for most hospital home programs yet, but I think what you're going to see is you're going to see industry get involved, like, you know, the Amazons and the drug distributors and, you know, I'll, we'll be at home doing a hospital at home visit and I'll We'll put in an order to change an antibiotic and a drone five minutes later will be dropping off, you know, the intravenous bag of ceftriaxone. And I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen relatively, relatively quickly. You know, change happens slowly until it speeds up.
yeah, until you get to some critical mass and it takes off. And there certainly are all of these unusual players, such as, you know, as you mentioned, is Amazon and some of the, even some of the large, uh, you know, retail pharmacy chains doing home deliveries, that kind of thing. You know, uh, the Uber and Lyfts of this world getting involved in healthcare. So I think we're seeing that coming from all angles. Exactly. So Allison, what kind, you talk, mentioned med surge patients. Let's talk a little bit about what kinds of patients, you know, from actually both of you, we'll start with Allison, um, are appropriate for this kind of program. It's certainly been, you know, our focus of, of our work that we've been trying to do with all of you to really understand that and wrap our brains around it. Bruce, you mentioned, you know, safe care, right? That's always sort of the mantra. You want safe and effective care and, and great if the cost follows. That's fabulous. So want to talk a little bit about the kinds of patients that might be appropriate for these kind of programs? Sure, absolutely. And I, I think you just hit the top priority, which is uh, patient safety. And obviously, for any program to succeed, the, there has to be a fundamental safety in, inherent to all the systems in place. And what we did with our program was we, before we began to set the program up, we looked retrospectively to see what, what patients in our health system, with which diagnoses, had stayed in the hospital for a, a sh relatively short period of time and um, two to three days up to 72 hours. Based on that, we were able to identify a, a list of diagnoses that may be appropriate to receive a short-term home health care as an alternative to hospitalization. And once we had a list of those diagnoses, uh, we were able to, to move forward. And what, what these were low, low acuity patients in that these weren't patients who required cardiac monitoring. Again, their hospitalizations were less than 72 hours. And this was to implement and, and test the system to make sure that we could develop a safe system for the patients. Once, uh, once we had a list of eligible diagnoses in place, we established other criteria such as uh, the patient has to have a suitable home environment and that that was a self-reported trait from the patients. Uh, we didn't go to the home to assess the home prior to discharging them. We, uh, we asked that the patient have somebody at home with them, that they didn't live alone um, to build in another level of safety. And the patient had to have an active primary care doctor within our, our health system who was agreeable to follow them at home during the uh, acute care episode. And finally, the, the patient couldn't be obviously critically ill. So the majority of our patients um, had low acuity medical issues, but not so low that they, they didn't require acute care. So for example, we took patients with uh, UTIs or pilo or pneumonia, um, or patients who needed, uh, who were fluid overloaded and needed a gentle diuresis. These are the types of patients who we enrolled in our program. And the, the success rate was very high. We had, of 70 patients who were enrolled, we only had two that required ultimate admission to the hospital. And, the, and that was because of a change in antibiotics that they needed. Their IV antibiotics that they were initially receiving were not successful and they had to be changed. So overall, I think patient selection uh, for any acute care, for any home-based um, hospital program is essential. And building in layers of safety to make sure that uh, the, the care that they're going to receive is successful because the the resources around the patient are in place. Bruce, how about from your perspective? Yeah, I think uh, Allison's description pretty much mirrors the way we started approaching things uh, a while back. And I think 
you know, the issue is you need to make sure you're taking patients who meet threshold criteria for being admitted to the hospital, which people will uh, sometimes argue about, uh, but for which, you know, entities like Interqual have, have developed reasonable criteria. Um, understanding that many of those decisions are still made at the bedside in an emergency department or in a clinic, and that older people with multiple chronic conditions and functional impairment uh, sometimes get, at least in Baltimore, will often get admitted to the hospital whether they <laughs> need to or not, just because they've made it to the emergency department mm. and no one knows what to do with them. Um, and I, and I, I agree the notion of you want people who need to be in the hospital but are not so sick that they need intensive care, not so sick that they're likely to become unstable in the future, you know, during the hospitalization and people who are unlikely to require a highly tech-oriented admission. That, that was kind of the approach that we, we took when we developed our first set of eligibility criteria. And then I think I would just add that, um, you know, over time, that range of diagnoses has expanded quite a bit. So in a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation demonstration that was done at Mount Sinai that um, I was collaborating on, the range of DRGs that were taken care of reached out into the several dozen. So once you have the, you know, the, the ability to do this, you can really start to apply it to a lot of conditions. And then the other thing I would add is as technology improves and as the ability to monitor people at home improves, you're actually will be able to go a bit deeper within any particular illness, a bit deeper into the tranche and start to take patients who, you know, are a little, are a little less stable, but safe to take care of at home because the monitoring can be done because you have the ability to react quickly. Uh, so, you know, a colleague, David Levine at Brigham and Women's was using some monitoring in some mm -hmm. of his trials. Uh, there's a commercial entity called Medically Home, full disclosure, I do some consulting for them. Uh, they have created basically a a mission control type unit where their, their hospital at home physician doesn't make in-person visits, but is able to monitor people uh, via two-way biometrically enhanced telemedicine and visits are made by nurses and nurse practitioners. Uh, and because they have that monitoring 24 seven, they can take people uh, who are a bit sicker than the ones we would have been comfortable taking, taking when, we did our, when we did our pilot work way back when uh, and I think that will actually improve both the healthcare case and the business case for hospital at home, because once you can do that, you can start to create the critical mass of patients that will start to get the attention of people in the C-suite, uh, because then they'll say, oh, wow, this, this program can be bigger. This program really can make a dent in things. Uh, and I think they'll start to pay more attention. But I think, you know, the severity of people that you take is dependent on kind of the capabilities of the program that any particular health system is able to field. And that will improve, I think, slowly over time as technology and monitoring improve. Again, using that as a tool and never, never really as a solution to anything. Right, right. So, Allison, you had mentioned um, a lot of the sort of buy-in, if you will, as organiz you know, you, that you had as an organization might want to start to garner some um, groundswell, if you will, of support for starting a program. So what would you advise people of, of 
going about starting a program like this? And then certainly any pitfalls they should watch for, you know, do people have to do it all on their own? Can they partner? You know, what do you know about what could you advise people about from that perspective? Sure. I think as clinicians, our, our central focus should always be the, the patient first. And I think if, if the patient is made the central focus of any program, um, that, that's a good starting point. So pointing out the benefits to the patient, uh, the, the comfort of the patient, the satisfaction of the patient, and uh, as we had mentioned, avoiding some of the, the deleterious aspects of hospital admission, in particular for the older patients, the delirium, the falls, the, the hospital-acquired infections. Um, so focusing on the patient would be, would be central when starting to talk about the more administrative aspect of healthcare, focusing on the potential to decrease hospital readmissions, focusing on the ability to make inpatient beds available uh, would be another avenue to, um, to pursue with the, with the C-suite. And then as far as talking about the program with the providers, I, I think most clinicians want to make sure that once patients leave their immediate care, that any plan put in place is, is safe. And for that, it, it takes convincing them that the, the system is safe. So showing them that the, the healthcare providers, the, the home health nurses or the home health provider is going to be reliable um, and ensure them that there's experience there and that there's been a partnership with this home health provider in the past and the familiarity with that group is there ensuring them that the patient's able to get their medications. Those kinds of things are, are very important for the providers to know that once the patient leaves their care, the, the, the patient is going to be okay. And then um, as far as pitfalls are concerned, I think that making sure that the patients are selected appropriately. So making sure the home setup is, is safe for the patient, um, making sure that the, this was a, a critical to our patient population, making sure that any the patients were aware of any co-pays that they may have to pay with their insurance uh, for home health care. This, this can be variable um, depending on, on the patient. And it's one pitfall that I think has to be addressed up front. And that is if the patient has a copay, they need to know what their potential copay would be before they go home so that they don't get, they don't get hit with a big bill. And that was uh, that was something that we really had to develop very carefully with our billing department prior to sending the patients home. So that, that's something I would highlight as an important pitfall for providers to be aware of. So did you have a home health agency like affiliated with UC San Diego that's just part of your whole organization and that's how you're delivering the actual hands-on services to the patients in their homes? Or was that like a partnership with an unrelated kind of group that had to be trained and that sort of thing? Correct. It was the latter. We had a partnership with an independent home health agency. It was it was a very reliable home health agency, and we uh, we discussed this program closely with them before uh, moving forward with the program. They were very reliable. So uh, that was that was one avenue that we pursued. Uh, there's certainly the model where the home health agency is built within the health system would be functional as well. 
Bruce, from your perspective, same kind of model and just thinking about, you know, setting up a program, the sort of infrastructure that's required, you know, once you get past the buy-in. So the actual nuts and bolts of how do you, how do you do this? How do you deliver this? Is this through partnership? Is this through staff that the organization already has within the hospital? What have you guys experienced? Yeah, I would say yes, yes, yes. It depends. <laughs> and I think I've seen just about every sort of permutation, and maybe not every, but I've certainly seen a variety of permutations in how health systems have decided to build hospital at home. I, I think one thing that uh, programs tend to underestimate, not always, but uh, that they tend to think only about um, the care provision, they forget about issues. And I think Allison was alluding to this notion of, you know, thinking about the IT infrastructure you need behind this and thinking about um, uh, the issue of dropping and reconciling bills, which for a hospital at home, since it's not a standard service, is not always the easiest thing to do. So it's not simply, you know, people on the front lines providing care, which is utterly critical, but it's all the support things that happen in a hospital that also need to happen for a hospital at home, because at some level you're creating a whole new service for the hospital, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, we did not really have intensive care units. And now we have those, but people seem to think that those somehow materialized overnight in full form, but those evolved too. So, you know, new services evolve and they have to be constituted in whole. You know, the issue of whether you're doing things in partnership or using your own assets, I think one thing that anyone in healthcare understands is that healthcare is a hyper-local kind of enterprise. So if you're in a place where you, if your system has an amazing home health asset, home health agency, you might want to use that. If they don't and you have one in the community, you might want to use that. Uh, and I think that goes for most of the services for hospital at home. I, I would say that, um, you know, as Allison explained, the idea of having important conversations with your partners about what this model is, is critical. Getting things into contracts with, you know, time rest restraints that you need to provide great care is essential. And then those things really need to be tested because even though you, you may have discussed it and may have it in writing, once, you know, translating that into actual workflow uh, is often a challenge. So uh, as a, one of my colleagues, Al Su, who is the immediate past chair of geriatrics at Mount Sinai in New York and who's, who really has led the development along with Dr. Linda DeCherry up at Sinai for their hospital at home program is fond of saying, you know, it's easier to get Chinese food delivered in New York City to your door through a blizzard at two o'clock in the morning than it often is to get oxygen delivered at 12 noon on a sunny spring day in a timely way. And I think that goes back to that supply chain issue and logistics, and, and we really do need to work on that. So you both mentioned and, and sort of referenced, you know, payment for all of this, right? And so it's not formalized yet. Uh, I certainly know, I mean, CMS through their um, innovation center, you know, has done the studies. What are you guys seeing from payers out there beyond Medicare or Medicaid as a payer, sort of the commercial world and, and their interest and either helping to sponsor these programs or figure out how to reimburse for this? Have you seen any developments there? Bruce, maybe start with you. 
Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, on the uh, the Medicare side, I, I think we will be seeing some developments moving forward. We had, uh, again, with um, my colleagues at Mount Sinai, we submitted a proposal to something called the PTAC, the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee to the Secretary. This is about two years ago, and we put in a proposal for a basically a 30-day bundled payment for a hospital-at-home admission and 30 days post-acute care, and that was approved by the Special Committee at Health and Human Services uh, and was referred to the Secretary, and there were other proposals for other types of payment mechanisms to take care of high-need, high-cost populations. And the Secretary passed on those, but did ask leadership uh, at CMS to continue conversations uh, with hospital-at-home uh, parties. And that has gone on, and I think, I think there will be progress there. Um, on the non-federal uh, payer side, we are seeing more interest, much more interest from commercial payers, uh, who, uh, especially when they have a big footprint in a particular market are in a position to create contracts and payment mechanisms for hospital at home. So we are definitely starting to see that. And then sort of federal, but not Medicare or Medicaid, but the VA health system is, mm -hmm. is really an excellent place for hospital at home because the VAs, uh, all the major VA med uh, medical centers have home-based primary care programs, which provide um, more of that ongoing longitudinal care, but they often can serve as an amazing substrate on which to build hospital at home programs. So there are now, I think, at least a dozen or so VA programs out there that are right. um, doing hospital at home of various types. And I think that's a great, a great thing as well, because I think that lines up so nicely with a lot of the strategic initiatives of VA to reduce queuing on the inpatient side, to provide care in the community, to provide high value care to veterans, um, you know, in, in the community. So I think we are seeing those things. And then uh, on the non-fee-for-service federal side, Medicare Managed Care is an excellent option for hospital at home. And we're seeing a lot more interest in hospital at home among the larger Medicare Advantage plans. Great, Allison, anything to add to that? No, I think that summarized it really well. Uh, there's, you know, just as a, a little bit of an addition for the um, for the providers who oversee the, the care at home as well, depending on, on where on the spectrum the reimbursement is. Mm -hmm. uh, the, there's also some transition of care or views available to providers uh, to make sure they are reimbursed for their for the care they provide when the patient's in the home. Uh, that That is dependent on the patient having an observation stay or an inpatient stay. With our unique stance from the emergency department, we were able to leverage our ED observation unit uh, prior to discharging several of these patients to the home. And that uh, built in an extra level of safety uh, prior to discharging these patients to home. Um, with systems in place like that, the uh, the care providers can take advantage of this transition of care or VU as well uh, for providing ongoing care in the home to the patients. So th there are systems in place. Uh, it just has to be a little bit of research done into pursuing them. Right. So Allison, what are, you know, given your, you'd mentioned earlier some program goals sort of like expanding, right, into, into new areas. I think, Bruce, you did as well, but we'll start with Allison. 
kind of in this next coming year or the next, you know, three to five years, what are some, what's on the horizon for either additional patient populations, perhaps pediatric, I don't know, OB, uh, the whole conundrum of observation level of care or observation status uh, that's out there is a, certainly been a, a hot ticket uh, in the marketplace. So any particular areas you guys are focusing on or, or seeing that uh, will be up and coming? Yeah, I, I think it was mentioned before by Bruce with the with the growing advantage of technology that we have in home-based care. I think that'll open the door tremendously to increasing the population that can be served at home with a, with a hospital and home program. So as technology develops and becomes more accessible, that, that'll certainly help to advance these types of programs. Uh, as the programs expand, I, I would love to see this be a, a standard uh, quote admission option from the emergency department. Traditionally, right now we have inpatient admission, uh, observation admission, ED observation, or discharge. Those are our main um, options when sending a patient out of the ED or transfer to another hospital. But it would be great to see these programs grow so that this becomes a standard option for eligible patients. Um, so I, uh, that I would love to see. And then as these programs develop, I think uh, it'll be really important to uh, really look at the, the patient's home. So really expand the model to be all inclusive and look to see what what it may be in the patient's homes that are causing them to have to come to the emergency department and try to um, try to help these patients so that they, they don't have to come back, so that they don't have to have a hospital admission and expand the hospital and the home program to really maximize the patient's home environments to help their ultimate health. So that would be the five to 10 year goal in my mind uh, for where we can go with hospital and the home. Bruce, thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, so I would, I would echo what Allison said, the notion of somehow mainstreaming or normalizing hospital at home care so that hospitals, health systems, leadership, emergency medicine physicians see hospital at home as, hey, it's just another unit in our hospital and, and we use that too. I think you're gonna see the uh, range and depth of acuity uh, increase over time, what's taken care of in the home. And I would say, I don't know what the lags are because I think lags in healthcare are the hardest things to predict, but you know, in my mind, the hospital of the future is going to be uh, an emergency department, uh, ORs, and an ICU of various types. And I think you're just going to see many fewer what we now call med surge beds or typical inpatient beds. And I think those really should be moving to the community. Um, a few weeks ago, the first World Congress of Hospital at Home was held in Madrid. And Unbelievably, over 400 people showed up to that meeting. It, it kind of blew us away for folks wow. who were helping the planet. And you know, the range of things that are taken care of in hospital at home around the world is just astonishing. So you heard, we heard papers and reports on bone marrow transplants being done at home. You know, I think the, you know, we're really just starting to scratch the surface. Um, you know, you can do observation stays at home in, in an observation unit at home. And if someone stays two midnights in your home OBS unit, you can admit them to hospital at home. I think you're going to be seeing a whole lot more cancer care at home. Mm. I think you're going to see uh, pharma get very interested in the hospital at home paradigm for conducting their clinical trials because whenever their folks go to the hospital for side effects and clinical trials, they're on the hook 
for that dollar. Uh, and I think if they can get taken care of at home, it'll improve retention and current clinical trials, which I think benefits you know, society if we can get uh, innovation to, to people more quickly. So I think you know, we're at the start of something. It's still going to take a while. Innovation takes time. But I think we're on the path. And uh, you know, developments over the last two to four years have really been very exciting. And I think it's just going to continue. And is pediatrics at all a focus area? It hasn't been a huge focus area. I know at Mount Sinai, their, their pediatricians are starting to get interested in this. So I think they will be starting, starting it up there. Allison, you seeing anything with the pediatric population? We did not focus on pediatrics for our program. So I, I don't have experience there. Just to, I'm just thinking about, you know, as a mother myself, right, knowing how disruptive that is, especially with kids with chronic conditions, to keep going back to the hospital and a child being outside their home and their, their support system. You know, one would think that might be an area that may be right down the road for, for these type of programs. All right. Is there anything else you guys would like to share with us? And you've been a great, uh, great guests and certainly are clearly very knowledgeable about this area of, of exciting innovation, really, in healthcare. Any other particular pieces that you'd like to share that I've not asked you about? I don't have anything, but just a pleasure to talk and really nice to meet Allison, if only over the phone. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to share our experience with these programs. I I certainly think that anything that can be done to help spread the, uh, the growth of these programs would be, would be beneficial for the patients uh, tremendously. Um, we've, we've just had such positive feedback from our patients in the program and such great success with it. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks to you both and appreciate it and uh, continued uh, good luck as you expand these programs. And hopefully we'll look to check in with you later down the road and see how much things have expanded and improved. Take care. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.